Hello and welcome to the podcast at Chesbro Baptist Church. We're continuing our series on the enemy. And when you're going to battle against an enemy, what better way to prepare for battle than to study a previous battle that the enemy's already had? Or in our case, a battle that hasn't even happened yet. The title of the message this morning is Going to Battle Against the Enemy. Please enjoy. Revelation chapter number 12 is what we'll be preaching out of this morning. Uh, I'm going to ask you if you're physically able to stand one last time as we read the scripture. Revelation chapter 12. We're going to begin reading in verse number 1. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. His tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them into the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. She brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought against his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven. Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. The title of the message this morning is Going the Battle Against the Enemy. Going the Battle Against the Enemy. Let's pray. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all you've done for us. I pray that you'd be with the message this morning. I pray that you'd be with the Word of God as it's preached. And Lord, I pray that you'd touch each and every one of our lives with something special from the Word of God this morning. Precious in Jesus Christ's precious name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. We're in a series here on Sunday mornings called The Enemy. And this morning we're going to talk about going the battle against the enemy. Let me say this morning that there is something special about a soldier. There is something special about a soldier who will go into the hottest part of battle not caring about their life. There is something special about a soldier who will not give a, a, a second thought about laying their life down in an instant and in a heartbeat. There's something special about a soldier, and those soldiers are heroes. And let me tell you today, every army needs a hero. 
There was a man named Audie Leon Murphy. He was a second lieutenant in the U.S. Army. Second Lieutenant Murphy is one of the, not only the most decorated uh, soldiers in World War II, he's one of the most decorated soldiers in American history. Second Lieutenant Murphy got every single U.S. combat award and medal that the United States has to give, including the Medal of Honor. But not only that, but he also had uh, French and Belgium awards for heroism. Second Lieutenant Murphy got his Medal of Honor in 1945 when he was 19 years old. He was in an M10 tank destroyer and he was going up against the Ger a German counterattack. When all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the tank that he was in got hit and burst into flames. Well, then uh, Second Lieutenant Murphy told all his entire unit uh, to, to retreat and go back to base. But somebody had to stay there and somebody had to keep the Germans at bay. And that person was Second Lieutenant Murphy. Second Lieutenant Murphy jumped on top of his burning tank, grabbed the tank's 50 caliber machine gun, and grabbed the radio so he could call in airstrikes. While he was holding his position, he was flanked on three sides by Germans. All three sides, and, and what come against him were, were six tanks, and waves of infantry. And all you had was one man, his 50 caliber machine gun, and his radio for him to call in airstrikes. For one hour, 2nd Lieutenant Murphy held off these Germans for one solid hour with just those items. In that hour, he was credited as wounding or killing 50 Germans in that hour. Lieutenant Murphy stayed there until he ran out of ammunition and then he, now he retreated back to base. When he went back to base, he was wounded. He refused medical treatment. He, he organized a counterattack, went back that same day and, and defeated the German forces that day. His citation reads, For an hour, the Germans tried every available weapon to eliminate 2nd Lieutenant Murphy but he continued to hold his position. Every army needs a hero. I'm here to tell you this morning that the army of heaven has a hero like that. The army of heaven has a hero, and we read about him here. His name is Michael. Michael the archangel is the hero in, uh, in heaven's army. There are three incidences recorded in the Word of God that show this warrior's and this hero's commitment, that shows his conviction, and, and, and it shows his courage. Uh, Michael constantly defends his king, and Michael constantly defends his kingdom. Not only does he have an impressive resume of victories, but I'm here, here to tell you today his greatest victory hasn't happened yet. It's on the horizon. It's coming up. There is a good reason why the general of generals gave this angel the title of archangel. Why? Because he has earned his medals and he has earned his rank. Michael's first battle was for the body of Moses. That was the first battle against the devil. Let me read for you Jude 9. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, 
durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuked thee. You see, Moses' life had come to an end. And although Moses' disobedience had kept him out of the promised land, there could be no denying that Moses was a humble servant to the king. There could be no denying that Moses was a great servant and Moses was a humble servant and there's no denying that Moses was a great man. But you see, humans, we have a problem. You know what our problem is? Our problem is we like to worship great men. And so that's exactly what God didn't want us to do. So when it came time for Moses to die, the Bible says that God himself buried Moses in the valley of Moab. In fact, Deuteronomy 34, 6 tells us that Moses was buried so no man knew of his sepulcher. But you know, for reasons we know nothing about, God was not done with the body of Moses. And so when in order to hinder God's plans, Satan stepped in to hinder God's plans over the body of Moses. But that's when Michael stepped up and Michael fought and Michael contended with the devil. Michael's second skirmish, you see, centers around the greatly beloved Daniel. You see, Daniel had a vision and this vision was so powerful and this vision, this vision bothered uh, Daniel so much that he began to mourn over this vision. And the Bible says he could not eat. And for three weeks, Daniel went without eating because of this vision. Finally, at the end of three weeks, the mighty messenger of heaven arrived with astonishing end time prophecies. But men's eyes could not see the battle that had taken place in heaven. You see, for, for 21 days, Satan and his forces had fought against that messenger and fought against the angels. And finally, nevertheless, the prayers of the faithful man provided the weaponry and Michael provided the forces and victory was won. Let me tell you today that every commander needs a voice. Every commander needs a voice. We don't need commanders as weak, lily-livered, whimpering voices. We need commanders that will step out with a strong, loud voice and command with authority. Let me tell you something. Michael had such a voice. You see, because uh, the return of Jesus in the clouds, you know what it includes? It includes the voice of the archangel. General Michael will give a command and he will say, Come up hither. The trump of God will sound and bless God, we will all see Jesus and we will all shout and sing the victory. Michael will stand guards as thousands upon thousands are caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Man, let what a day that will be. Praise God. But you see, all of Michael's past battles, they will empower him for his greatest battle. His greatest battle happens right here in Revelation chapter 12. You see, uh, here John doesn't witness a world war. John witnesses a heavenly war. You see, while the tribulation is going on and Satan has set up strongholds everywhere, the scene turns to heaven. You see, for millennia, 
for millennia, Satan has had access to heaven. Yea, Satan has had access to the very throne room of God. There he stands in the courtroom of heaven. And here in the courtroom of heaven before the throne of God, the devil has earned the name accuser of the brethren. That's his nickname. And there that dirty old lawyer stands again. The oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job, records the devil accusing the brethren. And here it is, 10, 10 chapters from the end of the book, and he's still doing it. He's still accusing the brethren. Once again, we see the, the courage of Michael. You see, because Satan doesn't come here in Revelation chapter 12, he doesn't come as Lucifer, the angel of light. Oh, no, no, no. He comes as a dragon. He comes as a dragon having seven heads and ten horns. What a terrible sight that must be. But Michael didn't take a se doesn't, take, doesn't take a second thought. Can you imagine today the groaning and the moaning as the devil once again enters into heaven? Can you imagine how tired that the angels and the forces of heaven, they've been forced for millennia to endure hearing this, this creature spew his poison and spew his, his filth and spew his accusation against me and you and how tired and how old and how, how, how fed up they are and how frustrated they are at hearing this devil once again enter into heaven. No doubt the angelic forces of glory must yearn for the hour when once and for all they can put an end to this thing and they can shut him up. But let me tell you, the day is coming. The day is coming and leading the troops will be none other than Michael himself. And on that day, Satan will cross into heaven for the last time. And God will look at Michael and God will say to Michael, he's all yours. Go and get him. A battle will then take place that is literally beyond our human comprehension. John put down what he saw, but he can't, couldn't even comprehend exactly what he was seeing. There are going to be two results to this battle. Result number one is that Satan will be cast out. He's not going to be asked to leave. He's, he's not going to be ushered out. Satan is going to be thrown out of heaven. Here's the second result. We find it in verse number eight. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. The devil from heaven is gone for good. Never again will he be able to enter the throne room of God. Never again will he be able to place accusations against the brethren. Never again will the forces of heaven be forced to listen to his tyranny. Sorry, Satan. The locks have been changed. We've called in the locksmith and we've locked the doors and never again can you enter into heaven. No more will you accuse the brethren. I'm here this morning to tell you that the Bible has something to say to struggling Christians. The Bible has something to say to struggling Christians. And what the Bible has to say to a struggling Christian today is you can fight back. 
You can fight back. But you see, 2 Corinthians 10.4 tells us that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Meaning that, that we fight spiritual battles today. We fight spiritual battles with principalities and powers of the air, but we can't fight these battles using traditional weapons made by human hands. Those aren't the weapons that we use. Spiritual battles must be fought with spiritual weapons. Michael overcame him with spiritual weapons. And I'm here to tell you today that these spiritual weapons are still available to me and these spiritual weapons are still available to you today. When these weapons are brought up, Satan does not have an answer for them. When these weapons are brought up, Satan does not have a solution. When these weapons are brought up, Satan does not have a fix. He does not have a shortcut. He does not have a way around. He does not have to deal. He doesn't know how to deal with these weapons. He doesn't know how to answer them. I'm going to give you these spiritual weapons this morning. Number one this morning, Satan fears the blood of Christ. Satan fears the blood of Christ. Revelation chapter 12 and verse number 11 says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Since the very beginning, Satan has waged war on the blood of the Lamb. Um, uh, the, very first, the very first family had a problem. And the problem that they had, ha had is they had a sin problem. You see, they had allowed sin to enter the world. And let me tell you, when sin enters, when sin enters into the picture, it, it presents its own unique set of problems. Sin had came into the picture, but now they had to find a way. Uh, they had to find a way to remove the sin. Okay? They had to find a way to remove the sin. So the first up to bat was Cain. Cain was the first up to bat. And, uh, and Cain, of course, is a tiller of the ground. So what did Cain bring? Cain brought the fruits of, he, he brought the fruits of the ground. He brought of the fruit of the ground as an offering to the Lord. Now, let me tell you something. Cain didn't intentionally try to mess up. To Cain, this was an expensive gift. This was a gift he had put a lot of time and a lot of effort in. To Cain, this was a beautiful gift. It was the best he had. And I'm here today, I'm here today to tell you that uh, we know what Cain did later on, but right now I'm here to tell you that this was a sincere gift. Cain gave this with all his heart. He didn't try to trick anybody. He wasn't trying to deceive anybody. He meant every single bit of it. When he gave, uh, he gave of his fruit of the ground to God, he meant it with all his heart. He wasn't trying to be deceptive to God at all. But there was a problem with Cain's offering. There was a problem with Cain's offering. You know what the first problem was? The first problem with Cain's offering is good works from man cannot buy forgiveness. Good works from a man or woman, good works from humankind cannot buy forgiveness. 
Titus 3, 5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Good works cannot buy forgiveness. You know what the second problem with Cain's offering is? The second problem with Cain's offering was there was no blood. There was no blood. Hebrews 9.22 And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. I'm sorry, Cain. I know it was the best you had, and I know it was sincere. I know you meant it with all your heart. But bless God, you can't work your way into heaven, Cain. You can't work your way into forgiveness, Cain. Cain, if there is no blood, there is no remission. If there is no blood, there is no forgiveness for you, Cain. Next up to bat was Abel. Of course, Abel, he was a keeper of the sheep. He was a keeper of the sheep, so he brought the firstlings of his flock. What does Hebrews 11.4 tell us about Abel's offering? It tells us that Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Why? Because of the blood. Let me tell you today, Christian, that would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood, power in the blood this morning. There is a new, the newest doctrine that is sweeping our seminaries and schools today is this doctrine that the blood is not necessary for salvation, that it's only the death that matters and the blood is not necessary for salvation. This started back in the early 70s uh, when a famous preacher, pastor, and radio host by the name of John MacArthur put this forward. John MacArthur is also a Calvinist, by the way. But John MacArthur said that he, he began to teach and preach on his radio and in his church. And he began to say that the blood was not necessary for salvation. It is the death that mattered. And blood, Jesus' blood, had nothing to do with it. Let me tell you something. I'm just an old country boy from southern Mississippi. But where I come from, we call that heresy. It's heresy. Is what it is. You can't tell me that the blood doesn't have anything to do with salvation. And you know, God warns us that there be people like that. God warned us in Hebrews 10, 29, that there would be people come around who have trodden under the foot of the Son of God and have counted the blood of the covenant an unholy thing. That's what Hebrews 10, 29 says. There are going to be people come around. They're going to make the blood of Christ unholy or going to try to at least. But I'm here to tell you today the blood is very important. The blood is necessary. The blood is important. From the killing of the first animal, we go back to the Garden of Eden. We go back to where Adam and Eve had sinned and they knew they were naked and they were hiding themselves from God and God had to kill an animal and God had to shed blood to give them a covering. He had to cover them up. He had to cover up their sin. And how did he do that? He shed the blood of an animal. Then we can go to Moses as Moses stands before the Hebrews and Moses says, look, the judgment of God is coming and there's only one way to get out of the judgment of God and here's how you get out, how you get out of the judgment of God. There's only one way for salvation. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. 
The blood was the only way for salvation. The blood was the only way that they could be saved. Let me tell you something this morning. The New Testament is filled to the brim with statements exalting the blood of Christ. Matthew 20, 28 tells us that Jesus said his blood was shed for the remission of sins. Acts 20, 28 says that he purchased his church with his own blood. Romans 5, 9 tells us that if a sinner receives forgiveness as a result of his faith in his blood. Ephesians 1, 7 says that by his blood we have redemption. Ephesians 2, 13 tells us that by the blood of Christ we are made nigh. According to Hebrews 9, 14, his blood purges our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And in Hebrews 10, 19, it is by his blood that we have boldness to enter the holiest. The blood of Christ is important this morning. Don't let anybody try to downplay, downplay the blood to you because the blood of Christ is immensely important. And let me tell you something. You see, the, right, the, the righteous have always loved the blood of Christ. The next time you meet a, you meet a person who is, whose life was consumed and dominated by sin and now they found freedom, you ask them what they think of the blood of Christ. The next time you come across an alcoholic who was able to put down the bottle, you ask that alcoholic what they think of the blood of Christ. The next time you come across a drug addict who is able to put down the needle, ask them what they think of the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is important this morning. You see, because the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. So it is with good, it was, it's, it's with good reason that Satan fears the royal blood of Christ. Can you hear him today? Can you hear him as once again he enters heaven? And can you hear him as he gets ready to accuse the saints? Let me tell you something. He's got you dead to rights. He's got you dead to rights. He enters that courtroom and he's got that briefcase and he holds that briefcase up to the judge and says, here it is. I have the evidence right here that condemned that person to hell. I have the evidence. I'm here to show it. I have it right here, judge. As he presents his evidence and he rests his case, all eyes in the courtroom go to the advocate. And the advocate stands up and the advocate raises his hand in the air and the advocate shows the judge the wounds on his hand from whence the blood flowed. And the judge says, case closed. That is how important the blood of Christ is today. Let me tell you something. The blood never fails for the child of God. Not only does the blood of Christ wash away our fear of death, not only does the blood of Christ wash away our fear of hell, not only does the blood of Christ wash away our fear of eternity. I want to tell you this morning, there's another benefit to the blood of Christ that me and you can access today. Let me read for you once again Hebrews 10, 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. You see, it was the blood of Christ that bought me and you access to heaven. I have access to the throne of God today because the blood of Christ bought that for me. 
So when you pray, you're playing by the blood. When you're praying, you're praying through the blood. Because it's the blood of Christ that connects you to heaven. So when we are tempted, and when we are weak, and when we do not feel able, we can plead to him. And we can ask him for strength. We can ask him for support. Why? Because they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. What's the second weapon this morning? I'm here to tell you this morning, the second weapon is Satan fears the surrendered life. Satan fears the surrendered life. I'm here to tell you this morning that the blood of Christ is effective, but only in action. The blood of Christ is effective, but only in action. You see, it takes a dedicated saint to love their life unto death. And, uh, and, who would, and, and it takes a dedicated saint who have invested their life as a word of their testimony. You want to know when Paul's life changed? You know when Paul's life changed? Paul's life changed when he realized the truth. And Paul's life changed when he realized the truth that he, quote, that he told us in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Listen to this as I read it to you. This is Paul talking here. For the love of Christ constraineth us. He died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. You know what Paul is saying there? Paul is saying, if Jesus can die for me, then I can live for him. If he can do what he did for me, then I can live for him. The disciples' transformation in the New Testament through the blood of Christ is amazing. I mean, you have the disciples started out, Jesus was saying, oh, ye of little faith. He was, you know, telling them, he asked them, will ye also leave me? And in fact, at the end, most of them did leave him behind. And in fact, let's pick one out. Let's pick Peter. And uh, even Peter said, Lord, though I would die with you, I will never deny you. What happened the first chance Peter got? The first chance Peter got, he cursed and denied ever knowing Jesus Christ. But you see, but the blood of Christ has a way of changing someone. We come to the book of Acts and we see Peter changed. We come to the book of Acts and we see Peter preaching at the day of Pentecost and so many people got saved and Peter became a great preacher of the gospel and Peter was faithful to Christ and all of the disciples through the blood of Christ began to live for Christ. But you see, it wasn't always sunshine and rainbows. You see, the disciples paid a cost for living for Christ. Uh, the disciples would be beaten. The disciples would be imprisoned. And the disciples would ultimately be martyred for their king. There's a book. It's called the Fox's Book of Martyrs. If you have ever a chance to read this book or own this book, I would suggest it's a good book. But in this book, the Fox's Book of Martyrs, it tells us what happens to the disciples. Of course, Stephen was stoned. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded. Matthew was stabbed to death. 
James, the son of Alphaeus, was beaten to death. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. Andrew was crucified. Mark was dragged to death. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded. Jude and Simon were crucified. Bartholomew was filleted alive. Thomas was ran through with a spear. Dr. Luke hanged on a tree. Only John was spared a nonviolent death, but even he was boiled in oil and, and exiled to an island of criminals called the Isle of Patmos. Truly, these men loved not their lives unto death, and the centuries that have followed have only magnified the word of their testimony. And you know what? Satan has no answer for that. Satan has no answer for that. For someone to say, uh, to, for someone to love Christ more than themselves, Satan doesn't know how to deal. He doesn't know how to deal when, when, when someone loves Christ more than they love their own life. He doesn't know how to work that. When a person decides for, uh, uh, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, it puts them in a place of victory above Satan. It, 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 puts them, it puts themselves in a place to conquer over the devil when they say, look, uh, uh, my life uh, is, is nothing. Uh, I, I want to give Christ my life and Christ is more important to me than my own life. Satan can't handle that. Now, I'm not saying you're not going to get a black eye. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that when you come to that place in your life, when Christ is more important than yourself, you have put yourself in a place of victory over the devil that the devil can't touch. The time has come for us to make our choice. It's come. The saints of old had, have, have, have laid out an example for a surrendered life. Now it's time for me and you. It's time for us to take our stand. We must surrender our bodies to him. We must say, Lord, I give you my hands. Let them do what you want them to do. Lord, I give you my feet. Let them go where you want them to go. Lord, I give you my eyes. Let them see what you want them to see. Lord, I give you my ears. Let them hear what you want them to hear. We must surrender our priorities to him. Lord, I give you my family because I want to build my family on the word of God. Lord, I give you my business. I give you my job because I want to exalt you in every area of my life. We must surrender our futures to him. Lord, I will go wherever you want me to go. Lord, I will do whatever you want me to do. Nothing is held back. Simply put, let me simply put it to you like this. There is a cost to becoming an overcomer. And it will cost you everything. Will you pay the cost? In the 1950s, there was a missionary in, in India and he had heard of a church in northeastern India. And it was a long, difficult journey. But finally, he made it to this village and found this church. Now, this was a small, just a very small church. But this missionary was very encouraged 
by how willing to pay the cost of Christ this church was willing, was willing to pay. This missionary stayed for a few weeks at this church and he was encouraged by this church's music and he was encouraged by this church's preaching. During the missionary stay, the pastor said to the missionary, we're about to have a baptismal service. Would you like to come join us? And of course, the missionary said, absolutely. I want to see that. And so then they had it scheduled out and they had all the converts and they had their robes on and lined up and they had the church members over here and they marched down to a creek just outside of the little village. The preacher, the pastor of that church, he waded out into the creek to get ready to baptize the first convert. And just as the first convert began to wade into the creek, a crowd started to form on a hilltop nearby. And that's where this missionary witnessed an interesting scene. You see, as soon as that pastor began to, began to baptize the first convert, the people up on that hilltop from the village, they began to taunt and they began to mock the converts. And every convert that was baptized, the crowd on top of the hilltop, they got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and the taunts got louder. And then before you know it, the people on the hilltop were screaming at the converts down there. And they were, some of them were screaming, you just lost your job. You just got fired from your job. Other families were on top and they see their family member getting baptized and the family would look down at the family member and say, we're going to disown you. You're no longer part of our family get your stuff out of, out of our house you don't live with us anymore man these converts they were paying the cost to live for Christ about halfway through the church members on the bank they began to sing a chorus they began to sing a chorus that they had wrote and created just for these baptisms and the chorus that they sang was in order to encourage these converts for, to pay the cost for Christ. This little chorus that was written in a little Indian village in the 1950s has been around the world. And it has encouraged saints all over the world to live for the one who is worthy. And the little chorus, it goes like this. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb by the word of their testimony and they love not their lives unto death. 